0: Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of New England Soccer
1: Journal's The Goal Podcast. We've got a great guest for you today as I'll be joined in studio by Adam Scott. Along with being a New England Soccer Journal contributor, Adam is the head boys' varsity soccer coach at Pembroke High School and has served as the league director at the New England Premiership since August of 2020. He played on two state championship soccer teams at Weymouth High School and then went on to play at the University of Vermont. Adam, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Uh, So obviously, you know, you wear a bunch of different hats in your soccer life right now, but um, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you in here was to kind of discuss the last... um, two columns you wrote for the magazine uh, editions of New England Soccer Journal, which basically focused on a a referee crisis within soccer, youth soccer, kind of soccer at all levels. Why don't you just give us just a a brief – intro on what that's all been, you know, what's been happening, what it's all been about?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, years in the making, um, but really what we've seen is that there's just not the bandwidth of referees that we were used to having. I think the stat that I was given from um, a lot of our leagues locally outsource referees to U.S. officials who then assign the referees to different games, different leagues. I think back in in 2019, we had about 5,000 referees that were sort of in the the pool of referees. We are down below 2,000 now um i think the pandemic certainly pushed some of those numbers a little bit lower and maybe people didn't want to come back out and they were on the fence of actually refereeing or not but um the real issue that we have is we don't have enough referees in the game to cover our games uh, in every league that's in our in our region and it's not certainly just new england it's across the country where uh, even at the top level the mls next level on the boys side for example they are struggling to get referees so um the numbers are going down and it's, it's super concerning and um you know as we talked about earlier like the, there's a lot of programs and kids that don't have referees in their game and the games are obviously going to feel different when they don't have uh, a key component to it
1: right i mean then you're you're like plugging parents in to try to officiate games and it just gets messy i mean they don't may not be familiar with all the rules and it's just it's it's just not the the right situation for these players
2: it's there's definitely like a parent component. There's definitely a feel of like, do does anybody want to run like the AR on the, on the, um, on the touchline and grab a flag. And I don't think that's fair to the, you know, some of the parents will do it cause they're great people and they want to volunteer their time. Um, but yeah, we have, we have a lot of situations now where there's a just, there's a three man or three women crew, but there's only one referee for that three, uh, three referee crew or two. So you've got one AR and not one on the other side. Um, you know, in our league, the NEP, uh, our seventy-seven games, which is U nine and U ten, we have college programs ref those games. So we we essentially just ask some of the local college programs. They come out; they've been wonderful. Um, but that's where we're at. We just we have to continue to find ways to to build back that referee pool or be creative in how we cover the games. I think I have
1: a pretty good inclination of why this is happening. But um, you know, anybody who's been at youth sporting <laughs> events uh, and seen some of you know. The, the obscene behavior sometimes that you see from, from players and, and, and parents. But I mean, how, how bad is it from your perspective of, of just the demeanor of people at, at games?
2: Yeah. I, I think obviously like the, the people that are the worst with their behavior, they're always going to get more attention than the, the, the majority of people are great parents, spectators, uh, coaches, but there's definitely people in the game, um, the adults <laughs> that, <laughs> that are, that are misbehaving. Right. So it's, it's yelling and screaming from the touchline and, and, you know, a chastising the referee uh, and both touchlines, and if the adults are doing that, right? And if the coaches are doing it, and then the parents or spectators are doing it, it's only a matter of time till the kids are like watching what the adults are doing, and then they feel it's okay to. You know, to get a, to have a go at the referees, and, and I'm not blaming the professional game, but you know, some of the kids even take cues from the professionals too, where they think they can surround the referee because that's what um, the likes of you know one of the professional teams is doing. So um, it's it's a problem, and it's been an ongoing problem, and 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 now we've got to critical mass, and so now we're having to, to react a little bit, certainly to to kind of change the tide, so to speak.
1: It's such a great point because kids watch every movement, every behavior, when they're watching games in any sport, you know, whether it's an, an NBA player complaining to an official or it's a, a major league baseball player not running out of ground ball. I mean, it's, it's just taught bad habits. Mm-hmm. And when you're seeing uh, professional players, even though it's their livelihood, complaining to referees, it just it, it, it's tough for, for young players to see. And how, do, how bad has it gotten in the last few years? Are you seeing a trend where it seems to be like the behavioral stuff is getting worse and worse every year?
2: Yeah, I definitely feel, I mean, club soccer is pay to play for the most part, right? And I'm part of that, so I understand that dynamic. But sometimes I feel there's an entitlement for some of the parents um, where they want to be you know, overly vocal because they think they know the game. Certainly the game has grown in, in our country, which is awesome, right? The access to, to the game um, and and the global access in terms of watching games and being able to follow it at a high level. But there's definitely people that think they know what, what's what, and 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 it's one of those things where it's like, well, if you know it, why don't you why don't you referee, right? So, and no <laughs> one wants to do that. It's it's one of those things where it's I, I understand that people are passionate about it. I'm passionate about it. I love the game, but it's there's a level of of passion and there's a level of respect, and that we have to meet in the middle there to to make sure that the game doesn't feel um, different. And at the end of the day, my complete focus really in the roles that I do have. Uh, both writing for this uh, for the New England Soccer Journal but or running the league or, or coaching, is really to try to make sure that the game day environments are are improved, that our kids can play the game as it should be played, and in an environment that doesn't have any of the the extra stuff that that's not needed.
1: How, how much of a concerted effort are you making? Because, um, like you said, you're wearing different hats. You're, you're writing the columns for us. You're, you're coaching. Um, you're human, so there's going to be calls that you don't like during a game. <laughs> so, how much of that too becomes? practicing what you preach for lack of a better term where you it's it's a worthy crusade we have to we have to stop this but how much of this has kind of impacted your coaching style and, and making sure you're doing what you're talking about it's a great question
2: <laughs> i think you know um I've, I've coached at the club level but on um, my high school this would be year eight for me at the high school level and in my younger my first few years there was definite times where like out comes something from my mouth when i didn't like a, a call or, or the my mannerisms the way i kind of you know uh, handled my body language I've tried to to be better uh, as a role model for my players uh, and for my program because ultimately that's, you know, you're representing a a town and a community, and you definitely want to make sure that if you are saying something outwardly in in the the publication that that the kids that you are coaching understand that, you know, you're you're actually doing what you're saying. So um, I've taken, like, a little bit of approach, different approaches, right, where, like, one is I usually sit down at the beginning of games and pull out a notepad and take notes and focus more on what the other teams do and what we're having success doing. And it allows me to kind of focus more on how I can best assist my players and the team as opposed to start nitpicking all the way through, um, you know, maybe some of the calls that happen. I also know... At high school there 's a two two ref system um, you know it 's we 're not getting the you know the the best of the best referees at the like a professional level referee at times because these are people that are volunteering their time so it 's taken me some years to understand the dynamics of that and, and what that all means and then I, I try to impress upon my players that listen like we 're not going to get all the calls here right there 's no AR for example so if you 're looking for an, an offside it 's really difficult for a two ref system to To call that, so like let's be mindful of it, and let's just play through it. And I would just take it one step further and say, you know, when you get cards now in the MIAA, if you get if I think it's if you get three yellows, you have to sit a game. So when and we had this happen this past year at Pembroke. So if you're you know always questioning calls and, and acting out, and you start getting those 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 cards. Your, your whole team's going to suffer for it. So I think just being more aware of, of all the, the, the pieces of it to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing as a team and a program. And, and again, it starts with me. I have to create that culture and I have to create that sort of uh, environment so I, my, my players, my boys understand you know, what's what and, and we can kind of carry forward.
1: It's funny. I one time joked to a referee I'm friendly with after a game. I said, what'd you see on that call? Why'd you make that call? And he said, you know, if I was any good at this, I wouldn't be refing at this level, <laughs> which is, which is a great point. But yeah, I mean, these aren't professional referees. A lot of times these are, these are, you know, you're not going to get the highest quality referee in every single match you play in conversations you have with referees that, you know, what are the main things they say that they're hearing or the things that are kind of deterring them from wanting to do this?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a general lack of respect. There's, with all respect to the referees, I just said some of them aren't professional. They're all, I've never met somebody um, in the eight years at Pembroke that I feel like is a bad person. Right. <laughs> so they're not making you know, poor calls per se, because they they're like trying to get at right, me just stick or stick to team. a team. Right. And there's times where I think the, you know, they're communicative to me where they're like, what'd you see there? Like, on, like just on the side, you know, and I'll be like, I thought he, I thought he got fouled or I thought he was offside. And he's like, Oh, I might've missed it in my bad." So most of them are just are okay to, to like have a little bit of dialogue with. So I really feel like it's just a general lack of respect there. I've seen some coaches who just from minute one, to a minute 80 in a high school game are just like all over the referees <laughs> and it, there's, no, there's no time to breathe for them. And I just feel like that, one, I, I don't think it helps their team uh, when the coaches are just constantly berating the referees. But two, I don't think it allows the referee to do their job. And, and, and you know, a lot of conversations, it's like, what, what job do you have where you just get yelled at all the way through your job right so there's not too many where you work in a cubicle where it's you know somebody's just yelling and screaming at you the whole time and telling you how how terrible you are right so i i think it's um it's one of those things where we we just got to make sure that we're respecting them and i think that's the biggest thing
1: reminds me of that great episode of seinfeld when someone shows up to heckle jerry when he's giving when he's doing a uh, comedy show and then right. he, he shows up at her office and heckles her in a cubicle <laughs> i mean it just doesn't happen it, right. it doesn't Some jobs, you have to have that fixing. I guess the referee is one of those jobs. I mean, you wouldn't think it should be that way at the youth levels Mm -hmm. or the high school levels, but it has become that. When your team, when your high school team meets in the preseason in August, uh, how much time do you spend on talking to them about laying off the refs? Or how much, you know, just throughout the season, how much time are you talking to the kids about that?
2: Yeah, I think the culture is a big thing. Uh, I think that I've established our culture because I've been there long enough. Um, but we try to focus on what's important. We try to focus on what we can control, right? One of the biggest things I love about Jurgen Klopp is he's always talking about, um, you know, focusing on what we can control, right? Not the outside things. So certainly trying to understand what we want to be as a program. Uh, I've challenged, after going through that last year with a few, few yellow cards that ended up with like a suspension for one of our players, I've challenged our captains to be, like, wouldn't it be amazing if we if we were never yelling and screaming about our calls, or we were being more respectful? Like, maybe we can be the the leader in in our league uh, for a, a program that's just top to bottom understands what the what the importance is and the focus is, and that's just playing the game and being as good as we can be on the field. Um, and so, like, it's definitely a part of it. We never want to have that situation again where we feel like we're we're getting too many yellows and some of those yellows we're not. Uh, run a play yellows yeah, there they were because we were questioning calls so it's definitely something that year to year you're always going to pick up little bits and pieces you're always going to add to your coach and you're always going to add to your kind of overall program uh to strengthen it and i definitely um, feel like where i'm at now is that is something that is kind of a non-negotiable like we our program is we're not a program that's going to you know yell and chastise the referees we're going to focus on the next play and and get back defend or what have you if we get a call against us so it may be not in year one or year two that i think it was as important um, but now it's definitely something that we we talk about quite a bit
1: yeah it comes with maturity i think i mean we're all our hot-headedness hopefully dissipates as we get older i mean mm-hmm. when you're when you're young and you're competing um you're kind of living in that moment and I think I guess it's easy to complain about a call. Are kids do they have the ability you think to police themselves on the field and have they shown that to you that they have the ability to kind of get on each other about that stuff?
2: Yeah, I think so yeah I think that there's and I'm not just the team I coach I think there's enough kids on each and every team that understands the right way to behave or the right way to give respect. And so I have seen both in my program but also other programs where you might have a player that's you know, you can tell is bubbling over. And then uh, one of their teammates is running over and being like pushing the way or, or telling them like, like, come on, get back and defend. Or like, let's, you know, let's stop talking and let's focus on the next place. So I definitely think these kids, the, the cool thing about working with the high school age boys, especially in the high school setting, because um, I lived it and I loved it. Is that they love that season? They love their high school program. They love their like high school season, and they and they live for it. So they're passionate about it, and they want it to all go well. And so when it doesn't go well, they're obviously going to feel a certain way. But I do think that the modern day high school student athlete is more than capable of understanding the dynamic of, of respect, especially in the referee setting, um, and working together to make sure it, they can support each other as a team, but also you know standing up for themselves individually to. To make sure that they're not part of the problem, that they're part of the solution.
1: I thought both of the columns you wrote on this topic—the one in um, our last issue of the magazine and the one in this this current edition that's coming out—the March-April uh, edition that is out now—were uh, outstanding. I think your your passion for this topic showed through. How do we how do we curb this? How do we start fixing it on a broader scale so this isn't an issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've done work with the the Sideline Project, um, which is Sky Eddy, and she she runs the Soccer Parenting Association. So we we immediately partnered with her. Um, I've been following her for a long time, going to some of her talks at at different conventions. And so what that really is, is just education, right? It's sort of sideline education. uh, And we focused on the parents uh, because we feel like they need it. Not every parent is, is uh, you know, an absolute monster on the touchline. <laughs> but there's a, there's a number of them that I don't, under, I don't think they understand um, how their behavior, not even their behavior. Sometimes it's just what they're saying. So they're coaching their kid through the game, right? So as a coach, I always struggle with, especially with younger kids, where I'm giving instruction, but mom and dad are giving instruction. And you've got a young a boy or a girl that's like, you know, playing tennis, like looking at ball touchlines <laughs> to understand whose instruction they should be following. So I think it starts with education making sure that people are aware of of their behavior. And we've asked everybody, every parent to take the sideline project, which is basically about 10, 15 minute course that puts them through some some different um, sort of uh, circumstances to have them understand what's important. Um, We certainly have to educate our coaches because it doesn't, it doesn't just start or stop with the parents. It's also the coaches. We did a, a referee survey, the NEP did, and we ref- we surveyed over 300 referees who uh, wanted to fill the survey out. And it might've been the first time that referees in this area have been ever been asked for their feedback, but that survey, when you look at the res- results and responses, it was multiple choice, but then there was a comment section. That comment section was filled, filled with parents are, are a nightmare and coaches are a nightmare. Right. And then some of them were like, and the players. So the, the referees are, are basically telling you how they feel and telling you about their experiences and, There's some that are real positive, right? That they're like, listen, it's part of the game. I really enjoy it, but there's a there's a significant number that are um, really up up against it and are like, I wouldn't come back if it continues because I feel like both touchlines are screaming and yelling at me.
1: Let's try to do some power rankings with this whole thing in (laughs) in terms of who's to blame most. Is it parents, coaches, players? Who who do you if you had to rank those three? Um, groups of people who's who's to blame the most
2: yeah i, I would put the kids at the the bottom i mean i think the kids especially the younger ones you know they're going to follow the leads of the role models that they have um again i i don't want to be negative nancy if you will i i feel like the majority of parents the majority of coaches are, are wonderful they're in it for the right reason they want to respect the game they support their players um and their, their children um but yeah i think it's a shared responsibility between parents and coaches right um I've been on the touchline as a coach where I know that the parents of the, of the team, not my high school team, but in a club setting, were being unruly and being disrespectful. And I had to walk across the field. I looked at the other coach at one time, and I was like, we've got to stop this, because then it was the, the two parent groups are going at each other. And I looked at the other coach who I knew, uh, and we were, I was like, well, I want to stop this? He was like, yeah. And we walked across the field and addressed the parents in the middle of the game. Referees were super uh, like, thankful for it. I don't know if every, every coach could do that. Now I was I a was director of coaching, so I felt like impassioned to do that, and I felt like I had the, the strength, if you will, to, to do that because they would listen to me. But a lot of times when parents are acting out and misbehaving, it really should be the club, the team, the program, the organization, whoever it is, and that coach, they should be the ones that put the, the fire out, so to speak. It's a really difficult one as a coach. Uh, to come walk over to a bunch of adults and tell them how to behave. So, you know, again, I think it's a sort of shared responsibility, but um, not every club leader, right? So the NEP, we don't, not every president, CEO, DOC is going to be at every single game. So in, the, in that case, it's the coach's responsibility to, to tell the parents that he or she oversees to, to, to behave. Um, So I I don't want to rank them one or the other. I think it's the adults maybe, and then then it's the, the kids. New
0: England's soccer journals, The Goal, will return after this. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24/7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today.
2: What does it take to become a champion? Teamwork, talent, grit, and above all, opportunity. HUSAC Elite Soccer has all that and more.
0: Let's go, let's go, let's go!
2: HUSAC School is located in beautiful Huzik, New York, right on the edge of New England. Five, two, three, and
0: HUSAC students don't just dominate on the field, they dominate in the classroom. Students at HUSAC benefit from a rigorous academic program, expert instruction from an amazing faculty and staff, fine and performing arts, championship athletics, and the once in a lifetime experience that comes from a student body of over 200 students from more than 40 different countries.
2: Soccer teams practice, elite soccer teams train. HUSAC Elite Soccer isn't it time you went from good to elite? For more information, check out HUSAC.
0: Org. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England soccer? New England Soccer Journal and AnySoccerJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England soccer scene. Have every issue of New England Soccer Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to anysoccerjournal.com to receive soccer coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and so much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to anysoccerjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Soccer Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.
1: I have a theory. I'm wondering if you think it's correct, but the modern-day, like, high stakes of youth sports, I mean, the prevalence of clubs, the prevalence of pay-to-play,
2: mm-hmm.
1: when you or I were playing, I mean, you. I, I've said this to so many people, in the late 90s, early 2000s, like some kids were playing club, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. So yeah. I feel like parents are investing so much money and time to get to these fields and go to these tournaments and showcases that you kind of touched upon it earlier. They have like a stake in this. So they do. when things aren't going the way they want them to go, they're, they speak out they loudly. Is that, is that an accurate way to
2: depict it? I would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it just totally feels that way. And you mentioned, too, I mean, it's going to take kind of an army of coaches within Massachusetts to get this to swing the other way and fix this. Do you feel like there's like a growing sentiment amongst coaches in Massachusetts to kind of fix this problem?
2: Yeah, I think there's some that now, I mean, you know, it's like you, you hit them where it hurts the most, so to speak, right? If, if you start seeing that you don't have referees at your games, which I'm going to, I know that I think on average it's somewhere between 15 and 30 games at the NEP over the last few weeks. Uh, I know other leagues are feeling the same. So when you experience that, and then maybe your parents experience that, and they're like, well, we're the referees. Well, so we don't have any referees throughout the game. Right. Then I would like to think that people, uh, their eyes are going to be open a little bit more. They're going to be more sort of attentive to, to, to the issue, and, and hopefully they'll um, they'll take steps to improve it and, and build it back. And as I said, it's it's going to be a marathon fix, not a short-term fix. It's going to take time for this to happen. How do you get the referee numbers to go back towards 5,000 if you're below, you know, 2,000 right now. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of, um, there's, there's other things, other pieces, for example, like referee education is not, not too easy and to come by. Um, to, to get certified as a referee isn't the, the most easy thing. There's a cost uh, to that. There's also like a time commitment to that. So there's elements that we have to, we have to fix. Um, I, I, I'm deeply involved in it from a, a a lead director level, but also um, from like a a national level with US club soccer and and what we can do to kind of start the process of building it back. What steps can we take? How creative can we be? And um, we'll keep plugging away, but um, it definitely is going to take some time.
1: Are there any other ways to incentivize refereeing for, the, for for referees? I mean, aside from just getting more respect, are there other things they're looking for that, that you notice might be issues with the with the with the problem?
2: We certainly talked about pay. Yeah. Um. You know. So we're gonna there's going to be increased referee fees uh, for our clubs to, to pay referees next year. We've agreed to that uh, on the recommendation from U.S. officials. Um. You know. I, I think there's some. I think I think one league locally has done sort of like a bonus structure. So that if you were to referee like three games. Uh, or, or you referee your fourth game you get a bonus kicked in. Um, refereeing can be a lot on the body. You know what I mean? When you're if you're the, the center ref and you're running up and down the field for three, four straight games, even if you just run in the line, it can be a lot to, to just physically take. Um, so I think we're trying to find what what makes the most sense. The referee feedback is critical here. So if they were to say, well like yeah we're we're not getting paid enough, well that's a that's a obviously an important piece of feedback. Uh, if it's you know, it, what we've been told now is referees need to have games in blocks. So rather than you travel to I don't know you travel to Marlborough for a game, then you got to drive to Lancaster for two games, then you got to drive to Taunton. That's no one wants to be doing that. So I think we're trying to find how we can make it the the best situation possible for each referee, so that they feel good about it. Um, and but yeah, always listening to feedback and always trying to find what that balance is in order to help those referees.
1: Speaking of feedback, I want to kind of segue to the new state tournament system that massachusetts has now you and i were talking a little bit about it off the air where it's it's kind of just it's a a real statewide tournament right now and you've touched on this in, in a previous column for new england soccer journal as well just your general thoughts on how it worked out this year and what you think of it
2: i loved it yeah um i think there was a lot of adults as i said um you know that we had an issue with some of the travel right i know that there was one situation where like nantucket for example was going to like springfield <laughs> and that's brutal you right take
1: a flight to the to the yeah, field, yeah. so
2: it's like the ferry to the bus and then all the way back it's you know back to the ferry and all that so but i would i'd, I'd venture to guess if you asked those kids who made that travel they'd be like it was cool we'd never had anything like that um you know, from a coaching perspective, I've been fortunate enough to have our program be in the tournament all but one year uh, since I've been uh, coaching at Pembroke. And um, we've had a few early round games where we're playing like Duxbury, a Patriot League opponent. We play them already in, in the season. So it's nice to have that new face or that new team um, that you don't know much about. And because it just makes it feel a little bit different. And uh, I think in the column I wrote, I mentioned, uh, I think it was Division Two girls the final 4 for division 2 girls three of those teams were patriot league teams uh, which tells you that from a statewide tournament the new the new way they've done it that those are the three three of the four best teams in the state in a in the old way they would have done it only one of those teams would have made it out of the south right so i think that's what's important if you want to have a real state tournament and want to have a real champion have the the best four teams be in the final 4 this is the way to do it. Is there some kinks that need to be worked out maybe? Sure. And I'm sure that the MIA will look at that and they'll make adjustments. Um, but I, I thought like the power ranking system was unique. It, it awarded teams that were playing against really good opponents. And um, even your non-league games, like not going against teams that you know that you can just beat 5 nothing. it's like, we'll play a strong team and that's only going to benefit us. So I quite liked it. Uh, I, might, I don't know how all my peers feel, but uh, I thought it was great.
1: So now if you want to brag about how great your league is, you actually have some – something to fall back on. I mean, like you said, if three of the four final four teams are from your league, you have bragging rights for how great your league is. You
2: you do. And we were, we as a program on the boys sides were definite uh, beneficiaries uh, for the Patriot league being strong, right? So we had a few good teams that were in there and they were performing very well. And so that allowed us to have a really strong power ranking. So um, all good. I I would say if I can, the the one thing I am trying to push for now is um, to have those championship games be at better venues. So I I wrote about that, but I'm passionate about that, man. I think it's important. Like we, with all respect to the football um, programs, you know they have like a luncheon at Gillette, and then they go to Gillette Stadium for games. I'm not saying the soccer programs have to be going to Gillette, um, but we're playing at high school uh, facilities, and I think that that that's there's some equity there that needs to happen where our programs are going to. A BC or Harvard or what does name the college in the area that can fit us. But um, that's something that I think I would love to see at be added to to the, the tournament um, sort of a piece.
1: I agree with you there. And as someone who has covered, you know, a lot of high school football in my day, I've covered a lot of those state football championships at Gillette Stadium. And I've actually always thought that was kind of a bad move on the end. The problem there is, I mean, the prestige of playing in Gillette Stadium is it's great, big, and, yeah. but it's just, it's massive. Yeah. And you got, all you get these teams in there and I'm up there sitting in the press box looking down. There's like, you know, what looks like 12 people in the stadium. And right. it just it looks ridiculous, kind of. But I think you're right in the regard that there should, there's perfect venues. I mean, you could do it at Nickerson at BU. You could mm-hmm. do it. There's plenty of like smaller scale venues. Do you feel like that's an idea that's going to catch on for soccer?
2: I hope. Um, I joined the board of the Eastern Mass Soccer Coaches Association. And, and I immediately was like, uh, like, give this task to me. So I've been sort of like, you know, spreadsheeting all the local college venues and then the non-college venues um, that might work. And, you know, ultimately it's going to have to be the MIAA's decision. And so we're going to have to eventually connect with somebody over there, perhaps somebody that, you know, is on that sort of soccer committee, if you will, uh, to try to see what's what's possible. But I'm happy to do all the legwork in terms of reaching out to programs, reaching out to coaches, even reaching out to the athletic programs and departments. I just feel like it's a, it's a win all around, it's a win for the kids to be able to have something special. Uh, when I was at Weymouth, I think we were at Worcester State. We played at BU one year. Like those are memories I'll always have. Um, but we we need to make sure that uh, that the kids are being rewarded for their success on the field and and can take those memories you know with them for a lifetime um you know so it, whoever it needs to have make that decision it's certainly not me but it's uh, it's definitely something i'm passionate about and i think there's a lot of people that would would advocate for it and hopefully uh, the powers that be you know listen to it and, and find ways to be creative to to improve the game the, the final game environment for the kids
1: my favorite memories were always when you'd see the state tournament bracket come out and you'd say, oh, nice. We have a, a two o'clock game in Cambridge. We're getting dismissed from school. and You feel like such a, a king of the school. You get the, oh, okay. Members of the boys' soccer team report to the office. You're getting dismissed. Those, right. are, those are always my favorite memories. Yep. I, I'm just curious, too, with the, the state tournament structure right now. Do you feel like the schools out in Western Mass could be at a disadvantage? Because there's not the volume of great programs out in Western Mass. There's nothing against Western mm-hmm. Mass. It's just the Population-wise, we have a lot of a lot of programs in Eastern Mass. So sure. more times than not, you're probably going to have these Western Mass schools come out to Eastern Mass. Is that an issue at all for those programs?
2: Yeah, I can't say because I'm not there, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, Ludlow is always a fantastic program. Uh, and Division Three, where Pembroke is, Belcher Town was fantastic this year. So I think there's, there's really good programs, really good players, really good coaches across the state. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, if the, if 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 people want to have the ability to have non league games and travel a little bit more, like that's certainly a possibility. Like I thought about, should we reach out to Belchertown, for example, to see if we can play a team that we maybe would see in the tournament later on down the road? Um, so I can't really say for sure, but I, I do think there's at, at every level there does seem to be enough strong programs there to compete and have a chance. Um, you know, maybe the power ranking system is 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 the issue if you're not playing if you like the bandwidth of your opponents aren't. Uh, fantastic or strong enough that maybe you don't get the highest uh, ranking, but you know, mm-hmm. it, in every in every sport, you do travel and you do have to win games on the road. And and uh, you know, we're going to watch the Celtics obviously come up here and have to travel to you know Milwaukee and try to win a game. So I think that's part and parcel to to being you know a, you know an athletic program that you're going to have to go travel and win some games every once in a while. So um, I think it's fair, I think it's equitable. Um, but you know, I'd love to you know hear somebody from Western Mass. Maybe they have a different <laughs> take for sure.
1: In terms of the power ranking system, were you guys clued in to exactly what goes into that? Is it pretty straightforward with how that is formed?
2: Yeah, but I don't think you really see it, understand it until you live it, right? right. You go through it. So all of a sudden, it's like, you know, in Division III, Pembroke's number one. I'm like, this is great, right? <laughs> um, it definitely, we, were, we have a non-carbons game we play against Nosset, who's always a powerhouse. That benefits us. And it benefited Nosset, to be fair. So I think now that we've gone through it, we understand margin of victory. We understand, like, how the schedule works. Uh, it certainly is going to make, I think, coaches think about who they, they put on their schedule in a non-conference setting. You're locked into, obviously, your league game. So um i think it was clear but because you're looking at it you're trying to read through all the data but at the same time i I don't think it was completely clear to me until we started playing games and we we saw the globe rankings get updated the MIAA rankings get updated and then you understood kind of how it all works and how it all feels you are somewhat dependent upon your league and what your league's all about there's nothing wrong
1: with that either i think that's more times than not a a great way to do it um how's pembroke looking
2: for this fall yeah sounds solid yeah i'm really excited like the we kind of overachieved last year. We've had a number of kids just, um, you know, stepped up and, and made massive uh, improvements in their own individual game. And a uh, big believer in the individual growth leads to the collective team growth. So we've got a number of great players. Uh, all the kids are wonderful boys and, and student athletes just in general. So uh, every year is different every year is a challenge. But uh, I know we're all excited about August being here uh, sooner rather than later.
1: Well, this was great, Adam. I, I appreciate you coming in studio and uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a while because, I, like I said, I, I can't stress enough that people should go out and read those columns in the New England Soccer Journal. They're great. Uh, they're just such a, 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 your passion really comes through in there and it's a, it's a worthy crusade to be fighting for. So thanks for coming in.
2: Well, thanks for having me and thanks for letting me, uh, you know, share that passion in the publication. I'm really excited to continue to share more and, and be a part of uh, the New England Soccer Journal.
1: Absolutely. Thank you again to Adam Scott for joining the podcast and engaging in a great conversation. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer
0: Journal's The Goal Podcast is produced by Steve Safran and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.